Um, do you know this saying, don't count your chickens before they hatch? What does it mean? Take, like, ten seconds. We say things all the time, like common sayings, and we, you know... In fact, in Australia, we're pretty lazy with our language. We're pretty lazy even with our sayings. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. We're just like, that's too hard. <laughs> so we just say, don't count your chickens. Other people probably just think, what on earth are we... T- What's wrong with counting chickens? All right? But what we mean is, right, when we say don't count your chickens, it means don't count your chickens before they hatch. But what does that mean? What do we mean when we say that to someone? Have a think about that for a moment. If you're brave enough to, um, you could talk to someone near you. Um, that's a pretty novel idea. And you could say to them, oh, this is sort of the re- this is when I use that saying, or this is when I've heard that saying used and, and what it means. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to do that. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Either everyone doesn't want to talk or no one has any idea what they actually mean when they say that. That type of saying, and there's lots of them that we have in our society, that type of saying, like, don't count your chickens before they hatch, it's known as proverbial wisdom. Um, it's like a short, memorable statement that is meant to teach you or teach us something, remind someone about some basic life wisdom. All right? Don't count your chickens before they hatch. So what does that saying teach us? What does it meant to remind us of. And so let's go way back in time a little bit and think about a farmer who makes his living by selling chickens. All right, that's how he makes his living. He sells chickens. Now that farmer may be tempted to count how many eggs he has and then assume that that is also how many chickens he will be able to sell. I've got 100 eggs, therefore that means that I can budget on the fact that I will also have 100 chickens. Ah, but life is full of surprises, isn't it? Sometimes even things that seem sure don't work out according to plan. So don't run ahead of yourself. There is wisdom in waiting. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. That's where the saying comes from. And that's the way we use it with people. When something seems certain and people are running headlong towards it and saying, this is what's going to happen, this is what we're going to do, and those of us killjoys in this society... Say, don't count your chickens before they hatch, right? Now, the thing is, like all proverbial wisdom, this saying is generally true, but isn't always, all right? 
that farmer might have had 100 eggs, and guess what? He might have got 100 chickens out of it. And then he turns around to all the people that said, don't count your chickens before they hatch, and he says, ha, I told you, right? But there's wisdom in it nonetheless. The principle is true of both secular wisdom and sacred wisdom, which means wisdom sayings that we just make up in our society, but also those found within the Bible. They are generally true most of the time. So here's a similar piece of wisdom from the book of Proverbs that sort of lines up with, don't count your chickens before they hatch. In Proverbs 19 and 2, the NLT says, enthusiasm without knowledge is no good, Haste makes mistakes. All right, there's some Proverbs wisdom for you. The question is, are there exceptions? Are there exceptions? And of course there are. There are exceptions. In fact, we're going to look at the passage that we're up to in 1 Corinthians 15 today. And it's going to tell us that we should count our chickens before they hatch at least in one very special area of our Christian life and experience. So I'm going to pray, then we're going to read the passage together and then just reflect on it for a little while, okay? If you would like to, and you are able to, I'd love it if you could stand with me as we pray and ask God's help and then read the Scriptures, okay? Would you like to stand if you are able to? Lord Jesus, we are about to read words that can change lives. Your word spins universes into being. You keep sun and moon and stars in place. Your word gives us the breath of life and takes it. And you're about to speak through your word. So Holy Spirit, will you align our hearts and our minds and our will with yours? Help us to walk in obedience to what you are going to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians 15. You can keep standing if you'd like, or if you're tired of standing, you can sit. That's fine. 1 Corinthians 15, we're just going to finish off this chapter, reading from verses 50 down to verse 58. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. It says this, What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. And this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear 
brothers and sisters. Be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. That's God's word. You should take a seat. All right, let's just think about what's happened here, what Paul's been saying. Paul's been talking about resurrection pretty much this entire chapter, right? All of chapter 15. Um, There's been so much stuff going on in this church in Corinth that Paul's had to address. Paul's been dealing with um, all sorts of false ways, false identities that we can have about ourselves, who we are and how we relate to God and even how we relate to each other. And this church was pretty dysfunctional in Corinth, wasn't it? We've been talking about it all year long. There's been some pretty heavy stuff to have to deal with. We've also seen along the journey that although it's very easy to point back in time to another culture and to another church and sort of say, oh, weren't they messed up? Um, we've seen that there are echoes of the same sorts of problems that they, they faced. We face them. We face them individually. We face them in this church. We face them in this society. Things aren't so different. We can view ourselves through false and cracked lenses that need to be corrected by the gospel. And that's what Paul has been talking about all the way through this book. And he eventually gets to chapter 15 and he drives right to the heart of where our hope really lies. And it's in the resurrected Lord Jesus. A Jesus who has overcome death. A Jesus who has raised again. And it's the heart of the gospel story. All right. Verse 50, though, says, what am I saying, brothers and sisters? What am I saying? Well, this is what I'm saying. This is Paul's point, all right? And this is my first point. Paul's point in all of this is simply what he says in verse 50. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor can corruption inherit incorruption. This leaves us immediately in this text with what seems like an insurmountable problem. All right? It seems like an insurmountable problem. Let me dial that word back a little bit. Insurmountable. It's a mountain that we just cannot climb. All right? Um... We've walked into a valley in this verse. And in front of us is an escarpment and we can't see a way up it. We can't see a way around it. And here's what it is, right? Paul reminds us, this is what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood, basically us, we, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor can corruption inherit incorruption. And Paul has written in this book and so many other letters to other churches in his lifetime about the way that sin has corrupted our bodies. Not only our will and not only our mind, but even our bodies. And we know that. Those of you who are really young here, more than likely, you're sort of thinking, well, I, I feel all right. And those of us who are getting towards the middle-aged years are starting to realise, I'm not as all right as I used to think I was. And the older ones are here, they're giving testimony to the fact that, yes, our bodies are breaking down. 
even if you have faced good health all your life, your body is decaying. It is. And there are those here in our room right now and they know that their bodies don't work the way that they're meant to. They've faced disease or they've faced injury or they've faced hardship and their bodies bear the scars for it. Flesh and blood, Paul says, it can't inherit the kingdom of God. Nor can corruption inherit incorruption. This seems like an insurmountable problem for us because we're all sitting in this room and guess what? We're flesh and blood. Without Christ, our flesh is corrupted and that's a massive problem. A massive problem. In our natural state, we are incompatible with God's kingdom. Absolutely frustrates the daylights out of me. I'm no tech wizard, but when I get onto my computer and I'm trying to fix a problem, and there's always a problem with technical things, there just always is. Whether it's a sound system or a computer system or a camera, it doesn't matter what it is, there's always a problem. And you think, I know what I'll do. I'll download this piece of software because someone on the, on the internet told me that this will fix everything. Just download this software, run it, it's going to be brilliant. Of course, we look for all the sites where you can get that software for free. <laughs> After that, we think, oh, I have to buy it. It's an app. Are you joking? $5.99, what a ripoff. Anyway, eventually we get to the point where, well, look, I'm just going to buy it. It's good quality. It's going to fix the situation. You download it. You run it. Boom, boom. This software is incompatible with your operating system. <laughs> all right? And all the grace of God must pour out in that moment. Otherwise, you will destroy things. <laughs> but we understand what incompatible means, don't we? One thing is not made to work with the other. That's our problem as flesh and blood in our natural state. Paul says we are not made to fit and work with God's kingdom in that state. We will arrive on the gates of heaven and there will be a boom, boom. You are incompatible. And that won't be a laughing matter. So straight away, Paul jumps to what I think is our mysterious comfort. Resurrection is our mysterious comfort. Read with me again from verse 51. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. Let me say from the outset, resurrection is mysterious. It's a a strange thing. It's why... That genre of movies in our broader culture is called fiction, when people come back from the dead. It's why zombie films are considered fantasy. Life after death is mysterious. And Paul acknowledges that. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, I love that. That Hasn't that idea caught 
on in Christian language, right? That twinkling of an eye. That moment, that, that brief glint that you can see in someone's eye. That's all it will take. And um, my father-in-law, his favourite verse, favourite idea, at the last trumpet, and it would have had a trill on the end, I'm sure. Because the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. Now, this is the mystery, right? Flesh that was incompatible, flesh that was corrupted, flesh and blood not able to be meshed with the courts of heaven in its natural state, dies in Christ. Jesus' body and Jesus' life has enveloped this dear one that we love or our own lives and Jesus has absorbed them into himself and we are found in Christ and Paul says when that trumpet sounds one day, when that twinkling of the eye occurs, the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we will be changed. We're different. Right? For this corruptible body, he says, must be clothed with incorruptibility. And this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. That's how we become compatible with the kingdom of God. Unless that occurs, this incorruptibility absorbed because of Christ, this mortality done away with and immortality has taken its place, unless that occurs, we remain incompatible. And that's why he says, this must happen. It has to happen. Verse 54, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying, then the saying, that is written, will take place. And this is the saying where we can laugh in the face of death. This is where we can mock the grave. Death has been swallowed up in victory, the verse says. Where death is your victory? It's sarcasm. It's like death comes knocking on the door and those that have experienced this life-altering and eternity-altering moment where mortality has been killed off and replaced with immortality, where corruption has been dealt with and they've now found themselves incorruptible, death knocks at the door and we open it up and say, where death is your victory? Right? Where? Where death is your sting? Show it to me. And he'll search his pockets and he'll be left found in wanting. Right? Resurrection is our mysterious comfort. How does our future resurrection bring comfort? Either for us, as we sit here this morning, thinking about our lives and our deaths. How does it bring comfort? How does it bring comfort for those of us who have lost loved ones? Those who we've had to stand beside a grave and say goodbye to 
who loved and walked with Jesus in this world, how does it bring comfort? I'm going to suggest two things. Resurrection, firstly, deals with the seemingly insurmountable problem, doesn't it, of corrupted flesh not being able to inherit the kingdom of God. The resurrection gives us a sense of comfort to know that when that resurrection occurs, everything's going to be changed. Paul says so. The Spirit of God says so. And it won't be a a gradual change like we're experiencing as we are changed day by day and moment by moment into the image of Jesus. That, That takes a lifetime, doesn't it? And if you're anything like me, it feels like you take two steps forward and then like 500 steps backwards some days. And you think, when will this change ever occur? It's not change like that that Paul's talking about. This is a, an instantaneous transformation that makes you compatible with the courts of heaven. And it happens, Paul says, and it's wrapped up with resurrection. Verses 51 and 52 of what we just read basically says, dead or alive, it doesn't matter, we will all be changed. Those who have gone before us, and Paul says, fallen asleep. I love that language in the Bible for Christians. He didn't say those that died. He said they fell asleep. They're sleeping for a little while. They'll wake again soon. There's comfort in that, isn't it? For those that we've grieved and those that we continue to grieve for. But even if it's not those that have died, those that have fallen asleep, Paul says, we'll all be changed. There will be a moment where there are Christians alive on earth and perhaps it'll be today, I hope it is. Maybe tomorrow. Hopefully not too far away. But there will be a twinkling of the eye and there will be a trumpet blast. The dead in Christ will rise first, transformed and changed, and even those of us left alive, we will all be changed, Paul says. So there's comfort. In verses 53, down to verse 55 of what we just read, Paul talks about what occurs with that. This newly changed body that we have, where incorruptibility and immortality have been given to us in Christ with that new body, that new existence, we will mock the grave in spite of death. This world lives in absolute fear of the grave now. Even Christians We preserve our life, don't we? We we don't want to go to the grave early. We might even be not fearful of that moment and we think, yes, I know where I'm going, but, but we still don't want to go to the grave. The day is coming when the grave will be nothing more than a byline of a joke. Look what death tried to do in this world. Look what the grave tried to do in this world. And the light of all of eternity and the light of what God is yet to accomplish, it will be nothing more than a joke. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. It's interesting in verse 54 that Paul says, when this has happened, when this resurrection occurs, then the saying that is written will take place. Then the saying. 
That's a future hope. That's a hope that we look forward to. All right. We have a solid ground for a future hope. We have a solid ground for a future hope. Read with me from verse 56 down to verse 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read it again. This time there should be at least half the church who's willing to say amen to that. Right? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, that's better. Right? That's the sort of thing that as Christians should fuel an eternity of worship. It'll be all eternity we'll be saying, but thanks be to God. All right? But thanks be to God who gives us, who has given us, who we have the victory in through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're going to mock the death and the grave like we've just been talking about, let's make sure that we understand exactly what we're mocking. What is death's sting? Where is its power? And Paul tells us in verse 56, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. So let me try and illustrate it like this, and let me do it by telling you about a snake. All right, that's an eastern brown snake. Just in case you think they live somewhere else, they don't. You live on the eastern coast of Australia, they lived here before you did. They are still here, and there are lots of them. Most of you know that I catch and relocate snakes for people as a bit of a side hustle. Australia has the unenviable honour of being home to at least 204 species of snakes. About 150 of those are venomous to some degree, and of the 10 most venomous snakes on the entire planet, nine are found here in Australia. All right, aren't we lucky? I am. <laughs> the second most venomous snake in the world is also one of the most widespread and commonly found snakes in Australia. And it's this friend that we have a picture of up here, the eastern brown snake. How does this relate to what Paul's saying? Stick with me. Any snake can bite you. Any snake, all right? But not all snakes are dangerous. When I'm bitten, when I was bitten, I had better know what bit me, all right? There's a big difference between being bitten by a common tree snake and an eastern brown even though both of them have fangs and both of them will leave a puncture mark in your hand. I will get a puncture wound from a common tree snake and that can hurt, but the real power of a bite is the venom, isn't it? The sting of a snake is its fang. The power of those fangs 
is its venom. The sting of death is sin. Sin will make a puncture wound in all of us. But Paul says the power of sin is the law. The law convicts. All right, let's leave the snake alone for a moment. Here's Paul's point. On our own, we live in corrupted bodies that wear out, completely incompatible with God's kingdom. On our own, death is the only destination that we can be assured of. The real sting in the bite of death is sin. Sin has caused a massive problem between us and God. It has separated us from our Creator because sin forms the barrier between our corrupted flesh and God's holiness. But if sin wasn't bad enough, the real venom of sin is found in the law of God, which condemns us as guilty of falling short of God's glory. All right? The sting of death is sin. We've all been affected by that. But then the power of sin is really discovered as we read God's law and expectation. And he says... For all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. That's when the venom really starts to flow. But, right? But God, my absolute favorite concept in the Bible. But God. It doesn't matter how bad it gets, how big that escarpment is, how insurmountable the problem is, there's always, when God's involved, a but God moment. And here it is. Death does not have the final word here. If we remained on our own, cut off from the Saviour, death would have the final say. But we're not on our own. We're not. We aren't abandoned in this world. We're not orphans in the universe of God's creation. That famous verse that so many would love to quote here this morning, John 3 and 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Paul would summarize that and he would say, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Our solid ground for a future hope is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. In Christ, your resurrection, your loved one's resurrection, and not just as a concept. Not just as some sort of like a vague life after death. I'm really talking about the moment when your body, dead or alive, is changed in an instant in the trumpet blast and you are made compatible with the courts of heaven. That future hope, it means that death 
will have been undone. It means that the grave will have been robbed, right? Corruption has been reversed. Mortality has been swallowed up by eternity. So it's true that we should say amen when we hear, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right? That's our only hope. All right. I said earlier that this passage told us that we should count our chickens before they hatch. And it does. Feel free to count your chickens now. All right? I told you earlier that proverbial wisdom is true most of the time and under most circumstances. But I told you that this passage would tell us that we should count our chickens. And this is why. You might easily think that the resurrection matters most for some future day. All right? After all, all of us sitting here, mostly, I think, I think we're all alive. No one's fallen asleep. Someone, you're, you're waving. That's good. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, here still, I'm still here. I was going to do a Monty Python joke then, but I won't worry about it. Um, we might think that the resurrection matters most for some future day. All right? The day after we've gone to the grave. The day when Jesus comes in victory in the trumpet blast. We might think that resurrection matters most then. Some, some day at an unknown point beyond tomorrow. That's when the resurrection is really going to matter. And rightfully, I think we look forward to that moment with, don't, I can't even find the words to say this, but joyful expectation is the biggest understatement of that topic. A joyful expectation that we look forward to in that day, confident in what will happen when our faith turns to sight, as the writer of the book of Hebrews says. Right? When death will be nothing more than a memory, when all tears will be wiped away, when our long sorrow of the night will fade into the eternal glory of the day. And we might think at that point, all our chickens will have hatched. But here's the thing. That day is so unbreakably sealed in certainty. It is so assured. It is so inscribed in the scars of our Saviour. Because he's been there and he's already defeated death. He's already robbed the grave. He's already risen. He's the first fruits of all his brothers and sisters that will follow behind him. All right. Because of all of that, you can count your chickens today. You can count them long before they've hatched. And that's what Paul says in verse 58, the last verse of this chapter. Therefore, right? If there's a therefore, look at why it's therefore. That's, that's, you should remember that. I'll keep saying it until I die so that you do remember it. If there's a therefore... Have a look at why it's there for. 
Paul starts this sentence with, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters. So he's, he's swinging off the back now of everything that he's just been talking about, about the, the, the hope that we have for eternity, that future hope of the resurrection, that day when the trumpet will blast, the twinkling of the eye, all those things that we look forward to in the future. Paul says, therefore, because of all of that, my dear brothers and sisters, be present tense, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labour is not in vain. The therefore connects what has been said previously with what is about to be said and what Paul connects it to is surprising for us. It tells us that the resurrection not only matters later, in death, but it matters now, in life. Right? The resurrection isn't only a future hope. It is also a glorious present reality. Right? The resurrection isn't only a future victory. It's also a life-altering present empowerment for your life right now. Right? The most immediate effect of the resurrection isn't the ability to simply sort of buckle down and wait out the storm and just think, well, life is miserable now, but at least I've got the resurrection. Right? The most immediate effect of the resurrection isn't that. The most immediate effect of the resurrection is to laugh in the face of danger, to walk confidently under the shadow of death and joyfully focus on how you can spend your brief life here on earth, but for the sake of God's kingdom, which is eternal. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, count your chickens, right? They will hatch. They will. So count on them now. Live life now in light of the resurrection then. Be steadfast, Paul says. Be immovable. Always excelling in the Lord's work. Why? Because your chickens have hatched. Right? Because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. So we're going to finish 1 Corinthians 16 in the next couple of weeks. We're probably just going to take two weeks to go over chapter 16 a bit. But I want you to hear the very heart of where Paul has been driving this letter towards. Which is despite the, the challenges that we might face in this world, the false identities which can start to grasp and grapple at our hearts and draw our attention elsewhere, Paul says, bring it back to the gospel. Bring it back to what Christ has done and who he is. And the ultimate of that is, he's victorious. The insurmountable problem of false identities and false gospels and false realities that we might engage with, that insurmountable problem of being incompatible with the kingdom of God, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can live life now 
counting on the chickens of the resurrection. It's not that you will be victorious, you are victorious. It's not that you will overcome death, you have overcome death and the grave. And you have promised us life in you. And that we too, in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, at that trumpet blast that we're all looking forward to, we will all be changed. In Christ, compatible with the kingdom. Relationship with the Father that is unbroken. And we look forward to that day, yes, but... Lord, will you, by the resurrection, embolden us to be steadfast now, immovable now, always going about what you have planned for this world in your kingdom? Because we're confident, Lord. You will not leave us alone. You will be our rescuer and saviour on that day. You will welcome us into your home that you have prepared, all because of what you have done. You are our victor. So we thank you and praise you for your name's sake. Amen.